All right, good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. Pleasure to see you all. My name is Bill Keaton. Uh, I'm a professor of forest ecology and forestry at the University of Vermont. And we're talking this morning about old growth forests, uh, really everything and anything about old growth. And, and it's really a, a pleasure and, and a thrill to be here in particular because this is actually the site of the very first talk I ever gave on eastern old growth forests exactly 20 years ago today and so much has happened since then about 20 years of research on this topic that I'm really excited to share with you today. <clears throat> um, I'm also promoing this new book just a little bit uh, it's called Ecology and Recovery of Eastern Old Growth Forests it just came out last November and some of the content that I'm presenting this morning comes directly from that book. <clears throat> okay, so when many of us think about old growth forests, we tend to imagine this somewhat mysterious primeval place. It's a very evocative concept. Old growth, primeval, primary, virgin, ancient forests. Those are the types of things that, that we think of, and it conjures this almost nostalgia maybe for a time that was past or some kind of maybe biophilia, as Stephen Keller at, at Yale would call it, some sort of an innate sense or connection to nature. <clears throat> you can almost feel what it's like to be in one of these forests just by looking at a picture like this. At least I can. You know, I look at this and I imagine myself walking into this old growth site and just feeling that complexity and that richness around me. This is one of my favorite stands in the Adirondacks where I've done a lot of work over the years. <clears throat> and um, in many ways, it's a connection to the past. It's a sense of being grounded in the future when you walk through a forest like this. And it's also maybe an opportunity to think about the future not always in a positive way because there are a lot of troubling signs on the horizon. I love old growth forests. So today, this is a talk about sort of my passion for old growth. It's an incredible luxury to have an opportunity to give a talk like this. I'm an old growth enthusiast. I like walking through old growth forests. I like sitting and having my lunch in an old growth forest. I like taking a nap by myself in an old growth forest. I like hearing the wind through the, the leaves and the crowns. And I absolutely have that appreciation. I want to impress upon you though today that in some ways, some of the ideals that we have of old growth um, may not reflect the latest advances in ecology and the science. So in the past, we often thought of old growth as representing some kind of archetypical condition of stability, you know, the, the classic climax forest that you might have learned about at college years and years ago. And there was this idea that nature and succession was constantly striving towards that climax and that stable endpoint of succession. But that's really an outdated view of forest ecology from maybe the 1970s or so. Since then, our, our understanding and appreciation of these systems has come so far. And we've learned so much about the role of natural disturbances and climate variability and change and dynamics as really the driving processes behind these ecosystems. So we have a, a very different view of primary or old growth forest ecosystems these days. It's no less mysterious, it's no less 
evocative or, or grand. It's just that we have to appreciate complexity and dynamics and change. That's what these systems are all about. So these are some quotes from the book. Contemporary ecology paints a very different picture. We have to recalibrate our, our eyes and our minds to appreciate the messy consequences of disturbance and complexity that we see playing out in primary forest systems. And that was one of the reasons why my co-authors and I took the opportunity to, to write and to edit this new book. There was a, a, a prior volume published by Island Press also called Eastern Old Growth Forest, edited by, by Mary Bird Davis that came out in 1996. It's, it's a great book, it still is, and, and um, by no means are we attempting to replace it. But at that time in the mid-90s, we were just beginning to develop an appreciation of old growth forests in Eastern North America. Really just, just developing an awareness that we had Eastern old growth forests. And much of this book was devoted to finding and inventorying some of the last remaining stands of old growth forests and describing their basic attributes, their basic structure and characteristics. <clears throat> but you know, 20, 30 years later, we now have this new appreciation, like I said before, of dynamics, of change, of complexity. And we care a lot more about things like ecosystem services and functions and global change. And we also appreciate new threats like climate invasive species and land use change. And so we felt like it was time for a new version of the book. And that's what this is. And I'll be, pre be presenting some of the, the latest thinking then around old growth ecology and conservation and even restoration in Eastern North America. Okay, but before I do, I wanna just make sure that we're all on the same page generally in terms of what old growth is and what we're talking about. It actually means lots of different things to different people. And there probably is no one single definition. But the way I think of it is, is essentially a structural or architectural condition that develops very late in succession and very late in forest development. Forests are not static. They're constantly changing. And as they age and change, their structure, their architecture changes. And in a moist, temperate ecosystem like we have here, that tends to mean the development of a lot of biomass and a lot of complexity, vertical complexity, horizontal complexity in the patch mosaic, all those sorts of, sorts of characteristics. So here, here's some examples of some of the things that we look for in terms of the structure and the architecture of old growth forests. Certainly we look for large trees. That is a defining characteristic, but it is not the only defining characteristic. It's not even a reliable characteristic because many times very old complex forests don't have that many big trees because of this formative role of natural disturbances and tree mortality that plays out over centuries, even millennia. And so by the time you reach this stage in an eastern old growth forest, there are not that many big trees left often. Or maybe it's a low productivity site or something like that. So yes, we have big trees, but really more importantly, we have trees of all sizes and ages and all different positions in the canopy. That's very important. And so that then relates to the next characteristics, which is this vertical complexity. Multi-layers, layered canopies, or continuously differentiated canopies, to use the technical term. This continuity of foliage from the forest floor to the canopy. That's the Pew Forest down near Manchester, Vermont. That's important. 
And then other really important features like large dead trees, both standing and down, that are very important for wildlife and invertebrates and, and biota. So standing and down. And one of the things that we've really learned a lot about in the last 20 or 30 years of research on old growth in, in the east is the importance of large woody debris, not just in the forest, but also when it falls into stream channels. I'll talk more about this a little bit later and how that interacts with the aquatic ecosystem and the morphology of stream channels and flood resilience and all kinds of really important things that we care about. So large down woody debris important canopy gaps. Now this is something we've known about for a long time, since the 60s or 70s, but lots of interesting research now understanding how gaps ebb and flow and expand and move, move around in an amoeba-like fashion through a forest, if you imagine this as time-lapse photography in your mind or something like that, and the really unique functions that occur inside gaps, like the the congregation of insects on a warm summer night riding the thermals that ride up off of the, the gaps, and then bats and, and in the daytime insectivorous birds that are spiraling and circling around in these gaps chasing those insects, just as in one of a hundred examples of why gaps are so interesting and, and important. And then also large tip-up mounds. This is actually a, a sort of a unique but important structural feature of old growth forests, important habitat for lots of things. Winter wren, for example, that like to nest in these root wads. If it leans a little bit and forms a snow shelter in the winter, black bear will den underneath. Really important microsites on top for plant regeneration, both of trees and, and uh, herbaceous plants and shrubs. And I like to talk a lot about tip-up mounds in eastern old-growth forests because I came here from the Pacific Northwest, and I'm still connected to a lot of my friends that work in old-growth out west, and they're so arrogant about their western old-growth forests, right? They're so condescending about our eastern forests, like, your trees are so small, you know, we've got the real old-growth out, out west. I say, yeah, your trees are bigger, but we've got the biggest tip-up mounds. It's true. So, as you see here, big white pine tip up in the Adirondacks. So this is the one thing we can beat them at. Um, okay, so again, structural characteristics, age, some degree of continuity with the past, those are important, but we can't lock ourselves too much into one particular conception of old growth because all of those features that I just mentioned change dynamically over time and space. You need to think of it as more of a menu, sort of certain things that you're looking for that may or may not be present, or they might be present in, to varying degrees in a forest. And again, that's because we know that these systems are, are heavily shaped and sculpted and molded over time and space by natural disturbances, both natural and then, of course, we have invasive pests and pathogens on the horizon, which will fundamentally change all of these dynamics that we talk about today. Maybe I can come back to this uh, a little bit later. Okay, so that's generally what we're talking about when we say old growth or when we think about old growth. Um, and now I'm going to go way off on a little side tangent or, or side path for a little while because I want to stress the importance of not losing sight of the big picture when we talk about our forests right here at home. We need to remember that everything we talk about with the northern forest really fits into a much larger picture of northern temperate forests in North America and the importance of those and, and the importance of conserving those. And if you think about 
our forest here were really just part of a circumpolar biome that you know, circles the northern hemisphere. We're also part of a planetary system in terms of atmospheric processes and climate and all those kinds of things. So we need to constantly remind ourselves that when we're talking about old growth forests here, we're talking about something of global conservation value, and we're not the only ones that are trying to conserve old growth and that are trying to bring old growth back. We're part of a much larger global effort to do this. So I thought I would share with you briefly to kind of make this point of the, the global picture, uh, a little bit of the work that I've done globally, working with uh, colleagues and collaborators all over. We've published a number of papers that have compared and contrasted and examined uh, temperate old growth forests worldwide. So not boreal, not tropical, temperate like ours. And we've worked in a variety of places across North America, Eastern Europe, uh, East Asia, a little bit down in Patagonia, Terra del Fuego, a little bit in Australia. We've collected data from all over the world. These are some examples of the different types of forests that I'm gonna compare here briefly. Again, just to put our forests into this global context, the Western Hemlock, Douglas Fir Forest of the Pacific Northwest, of course, the classic coastal redwoods and, and giant sequoias of the Sierras, the northern hardwoods here closer to home, the Nothofagus or southern beech forest down in Chile. Uh, what else do we have? Yeah, the Eucalyptus regnans or mountain ash forests of southwest, southeastern Australia, the world's tallest tree. It's not the redwoods. It's, it's mountain ash in Australia. Um, mixed Korean pine oak systems in, in East Asia, back to Europe with European beech and European spruce fir forests. So these are the types of, of systems that we've compared, just to give you a little smattering of, of different types of old growth. I'll just show you some pictures here to give you a sense of what we're talking about. So the classic Douglas fir, Western hemlock forests of the Pacific Northwest. Again, this is actually where I got my start, working out, out west, and I was trained as a forest ecologist working in systems like here, and then jumped back east where I'm from originally. And of course, this is what many people think of when they think of as old growth. Um, this is what you always see in like the car commercials, right? When somebody's driving out to go camping in their new SUV, it's always a forest like this out west, the Douglas fir forest. But, but uh, anyway, not all our old growth forests look like this. And that's one of the things that our global analysis has shown that sometimes these characteristics like large trees or downwoody debris hold up fairly well universally, but other times, some, some features are missing. So for example, this is a mid-elevational silver fir old growth forest in the Pacific Northwest in the Cascade Mountains. This is Abies amabilis, this species. And it has some of those features we might look for, but it also has a really open understory and this very dense uh, ground layer of shamrock. And, and that's because of the snowpack, just the, 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 the heavy snow in the winter and the long duration of snow lasting into the summer and keeps that understory very open and park-like. That's just one of a thousand examples of how each old growth system differs a little bit from the other. So we have to be a little bit careful about not generalizing too much. And, and now maybe to give you a little sense of how we do some of this research and how we compare systems globally, I'm gonna take you to this place that's been in the news a lot lately and not necessarily for good reason. So, and this is probably the last thing you're probably expecting to hear me talk about today. This is the country of Ukraine in Eastern Europe. 
um, where I've worked for about 15 years. And you know, Ukraine is getting such a bad rap right now in the media, and it's such a shame because this is a magnificent country, and a bad rap through no fault, fault of their own, I will say, in my opinion at the moment. But um, it, it's a magnificent country, incredibly rich historically and culturally with, with wonderful people, um, incredibly friendly, um, and beautiful, incredible landscapes, and also amazing forests in the, the western and, and northern parts of the country. So I work mostly here in the Carpathian mountain range, which is actually Europe's second largest mountain range after Scandinavia. And it transcends something like seven different countries in Central and Eastern Europe. And it also happens to have incredible old growth forests, incredible old growth beach forests that have been very well studied, like this biosphere reserve in Western Ukraine. Um, but it also has other types of old growth. And I thought I'd take you to one now, again, just to give you a little bit of sense of how we do this kind of work and some of the interesting challenges that emerge when you try to do this internationally or you go elsewhere. And I'm hoping to inspire like younger people in the room who are looking at you guys who might want to actually do this kind of thing in the future. So I had the, the pleasure of being uh, actually leading and organizing an expedition to an extremely remote corner of the Carpathians a few years ago, right along the border between Ukraine and, and Romania here. It had recently been protected, but people didn't know very much about it. And it wasn't easy to get up there. You do this kind of work over there, you're typically in these old army vehicles that have been converted into sort of forest service use. And you were, were approaching that border with Romania and there were like border guards just out camped out there and they stopped us. And I was so glad that I still had my little visa slip in my passport that I brought it with me because I would have been in big trouble if I hadn't. Interestingly, in this old army truck, there's a schematic diagram of an AK-47 rifle just in case you need to assemble or disassemble one. Um, it's right there for you. Um, and you ride up in the back of these trucks, an old converted Soviet troop carrier, and you have to stand up in the back of this thing holding onto a chain and, and, and try not to topple off the side because there's basically no floor or big holes in the floorboards. And the Ukrainian rangers called this truck Mama. And they, they call it that because they say, this is the last thing you scream before it topples off a cliff. So that's what they told us. So uh, anyway, you ride these trucks up into the mountains and you finally get up there and GPS wasn't working, didn't have good satellite reception. So you gotta know how to use a map and compass, gotta be able to fall back on that. And you know, we're trying to find this lost valley of old growth as I call it back in there. We hike back in train up the rangers, teach them how to do the, the carbon mensuration, forest inventory work, and, and off we go and we're collecting data. Okay, so that's just kind of one example of where some of these data come from in this global data set. I've also worked in, in Bhutan a little bit in the central Himalayas. This is a, a, a nice example of a Himalayan hemlock, old growth forest. And another good um, chance to talk about differences between ecosystems globally. So we don't generalize always and trap ourselves into one way of thinking about old growth. So yes, big trees, lots of complexity, but these incredible 
under canopies and, and sub canopies of tree-sized rhododendron. They have 42 different species of rhododendron there. Many of them grow as trees. So really, really fascinating, amazing forests. And then again, these southern beech or nothophagus forests in Chile and Terra del Fuego, they look like the tufula trees in Dr. Zeus. You know, they're incredible, just amazing complexity. And the understories are like nothing you'll see in a temperate forest anywhere else in the world because they're bamboo and they're almost native bamboo. And they're almost impenetrable. They're unbelievably difficult to, to move through or, or work in. And then one final example, and I appreciate that you're letting me show you my travel slides. I don't normally get the opportunity to do this. Uh, don't tell Elise that I'm doing this. She asked me to talk about Northern Forest, <laughs> New England. Um, so uh, most recently, earlier this summer, I was over in Slovak Republic, and we were um, trying to find some extremely remote valleys in the Tatras Mountains along the border with Poland that have primary or old growth stone pine. Stone pine is a kind of a rare threatened European species, Pinus sembra. And we found these amazing, amazing uh, stands or, 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 or forests of stone pine like this, this individual. This tree, they think, um, from uh, radio tomography, is about a thousand years old. So incredibly old tree. These are what some of these valleys look like. This is the Koprova Valley, all primary forests, never cleared, no roll, roads. The last thing you're expecting to find right in the middle of Central Europe, right? Like real wilderness. And so this gives me an opportunity just for a second to talk about the, the importance of finding places like this. Now this is relevant to New England as well. Because for a long time, we have thought that, well, we didn't have old growth in New England. It's just not relevant here. We don't have it. Don't have to worry about it. Don't have to think about it. And the same was true in Europe. The same was true in other places. But then people started looking. And the more you actually look, the more you find. And we've been doing that here. We've been doing it there. And so, for example, we published a paper just a year ago in which we mapped all the remaining old growth in Europe um, yeah, the, and including the Carpathians. So you see the incredible um, amount of primary forests which we think still exists there. We published this paper and we found something like 1.4 million hectares. So that's, let's see, times 2.5. So, you know, uh, it's like three, three and a half million acres of old growth still remaining in Europe. So again, if you look, you might find it. And believe it or not, even though we've done some looking in the northeastern U.S., it, old growth has never been mapped here. We have never accurately mapped the remaining old growth in New England or, or really anywhere in eastern North America with some exceptions in the southern Appalachians. So it's time that we do that, that we have a really good inventory or map of old growth here. Okay, so let's bring this back to home. Of course, I, I work here a lot too. I mostly work in the Adirondacks um, in forests that look like this with some incredible old growth trees like old growth yellow birch as you're seeing here. And from this work now, okay, so comparing what we've learned from old growth around the world, we know now that old growth is important not just because it's inspiring and magnificent or aesthetically pleasing, 
It's important because old growth provides functions that we really care about, that are important. And we've learned a lot about those functions or those services that it provides to humanity and to the planet from all kinds of different studies, like canopy crane studies like this. This is where I got my start working in, in Washington State at the Wind River Canopy Crane research facility. But places like this give us the opportunity to study things like gas exchange across uh, old growth canopies, you know, intake of CO2, the, the production of oxygen and water vapor that influences local and regional climates, how biodiversity like birds and insects and lichens and bryophytes and other things are vertically stratified in the canopies of these forests. We know a lot about how the structure that I was telling you about before influences these functions. You know, CO2 uptake, oxygen production, habitat for biodiversity, hydrologic regulation, all of those really important things that we care about. And here's an example maybe of just some of those global data just giving you the idea that old growth is important. So what we're seeing here is carbon storage, that's the y-axis on each of these panels, in relation to forest age. And you're seeing our data from the Northeast here and then a few other parts of the world, Pacific Northwest, Chile, and the central Carpathian Mountains in Europe. And biomass, by the way, is a surrogate for carbon storage. One half of biomass is carbon. It's very easy. And of course, carbon is important because trees and forests are taking it out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis. They're, they're taking up carbon dioxide and they're transforming it into living and dead biomass and they're, and they're storing the carbon that would otherwise be in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas. So this is a really important service that forests perform for us. And what we're seeing is that universally, globally, as forests age, they accumulate very, very high levels of carbon storage. And so that's a really important function as we think about their role in fighting climate change and, and that sort of thing. Okay, so just one example of the kinds of functions that we care about and, and how those often hold up universally, worldwide. How am I doing on time? Ooh, I better really speed it up. Um, okay, so... Um, why is it that we have so little left, though? Why is it that we're down to less than one half of 1% east of the Mississippi? Now, now, this is probably a story that most of you know, I'm guessing, but we'll just recap it really quickly anyway. It's because of our history of land use change in, in the Northeast and New England. And I'm going to show it this way, as a forest age class distribution. So we're going to take forests and we're going to divide them into three general categories of age. young mature and old growth. And then we're gonna think about the proportion of the landscape that is in each of those age classes. We're pretty sure that when European settlers first arrived in the 16 and 1700s, the distribution looks something like this. So landscape that was dominated by older forests and really only 10% or less in this young forest category. So that was the distribution we had pre-settlement. By the 19th century, of course, we had completely flipped that distribution to one that looked like this, a landscape dominated by open grasslands or shrublands, uh, basically agricultural lands or areas that have been cleared for other reasons. And we all know the story of land abandonment in, in New England as settlers moved west, as the Ohio River Valley opened up, as, as uh, U.S. expanded westward, and also as the, as the country increasingly urbanized as people moved into cities. 
So by the 20th century, we had a landscape that looked like this, a bubble of mature forests that had redeveloped, so secondary mature forests that is entirely an artifact of land use history. So everything that we see around us is an artifact of this particular land use history that we've had in New England. And now for, for foresters, silviculturalists like myself, the question is, what do we do with this bubble? And you've heard some people arguing, of course, and legitimately so, that we could think about pushing some of it back towards an early successional condition to benefit early successional birds, um, you know, New England cottontail rabbit, other species that would benefit from open early successional habitat. A lot of the forestry community is uh, promoting that idea right now. But we could also think about pushing some of this bubble towards a late successional condition. We can do both. These two approaches are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but we need different techniques to do those. And, and that's what I'm gonna to present to you later. Okay, so even though we have very little old growth left in the Northeastern US, I just wanna be sure and make the point that we still do have some. And it's important and we can learn from it and we can develop silvicultural systems based on what we've learned about the remaining old growth here. That's how I've spent the last 20 years of my career, studying the old growth that we have and then using that to inform the way we do silviculture to restore more old growth. So for example, we have old growth northern hardwoods that look something like this. We have quite a bit of mixed hemlock hardwoods in an old growth condition in a variety of places, both in the Adirondacks, uh, a little bit in Vermont, some in, in the White Mountains that look a little bit more like this. We even have a few remaining stands of, of really magnificent old growth white pine. A few up here in the north, more down in southern New England in a few places. Um, uh, this lady is sitting in the room right here. Here's the picture I promised you. So this is an amazing stand of uh, old growth white pine near Paul Smith's College in the Adirondacks one of my favorite places. And then let's not forget that there are a lot of other kinds of old growth in the Eastern US too. I mean, we could go on and on with this. These are just examples. But for example, the really highly threatened and incredibly rare old growth bald cypress groves, the, the swamp forests of the Southeast, you know, where we keep hoping we'll find the ivory-billed woodpecker, but probably not, you know, in Louisiana and, and uh, East Texas and those places. And then a whole range of different old growth long needle pine systems that we once had in the southeast and that people are now thinking a lot about trying to restore. Now these have completely different structure, totally different dynamics than our moist temperate hardwood forests up here. These are dry, sandy um, coastal plain forests. Uh, driven mainly by fire. So these are fire-dependent communities. They need fire in the understory, just like Western coniferous forests, and that fire maintains this very open park-like structure. So those kinds of forests are important also. Lots of people in the Southeast working to restore those. Okay, so hopefully through this kind of whirlwind tour of old growth globally and uh, in the East, I've impressed upon you that there are some characteristics that are shared among these, but other things that vary widely, structure, disturbance regimes, uh, other sorts of things. And so if we're thinking about 
developing silviculture or forestry techniques to restore old growth, we have to make sure that it's very carefully targeted uh, at each forest type and, and their particular characteristics. Okay, so before we get into that silviculture, let's just make sure that we all agree that restoring or managing for old growth characteristics would be beneficial. It would provide some important functions that maybe we are kind of missing or don't have as much of now. We already talked about carbon storage, right, as a way of fighting climate change. And I'm not gonna do that one again, so let's talk about a couple others. How about wildlife? Let's take on this issue. Like so often, and I'm gonna sound a little cynical here for just a second, when you hear people in my community at least talking about wildlife management, they'll say we need to do patch cutting, we need to create early successional habitat, and they think of that almost synonymously with wildlife. But let's remember that we have a huge range of vertebrate taxa in the eastern U.S., and many of those are in guilds or groups that require different types of habitats. And yes, we have some that benefit from early successional habitats, but we also have many that need these late successional and structurally complex habitats. So we need to provide habitats on the landscape for all of these. Mostly what we have right now is kind of this, so we could do a little bit of that, and we probably need a whole lot more of this. Okay, so uh, managing for old growth would benefit those types of species. What about streams? We mentioned this before. So um, part of my work, working with many other people, has looked at how old growth forests affect stream systems by contributing woody debris into the channels, by increasing light levels a little bit in canopy gaps and little patches. All of these things affect the aquatic ecosystem in many, many interesting ways. It affects the types of biota, the fish, the macroinvertebrates that you might find in a stream. It affects things like primary productivity by autotrophs, algae, and other things as the base of the food web. When the woody debris forms up into these big debris dams, like you're seeing here, up and down these old growth streams, those dams provide plunge pools that native brook trout like to leap, leap, uh, uh, lay their eggs in, um, they trap sediment, the wood affects uptake and processing of nutrient pollution like nitrogen runoff. So all of these things are really, really important functions that these old growth streams provide. They also turn out to be more resilient to flood disturbance, but that's kind of a longer, more complicated story. Okay, so if we manage for old growth forests, we're likely to provide a variety of benefits. Carbon, high quality streams, habitat for late successional biodiversity. The question is, how do we do that, right? How do we actually manage or restore old growth? Can we even do it? Now, if I was giving this talk 20 or 30 years ago, at that point in time, like early 90s, late 80s, this idea of Eastern old growth restoration was purely theoretical. A couple people had proposed it, but nobody had ever tried it before. In the Pacific Northwest, they had to. They were forced to by law, like the court rulings actually, because of the controversy around spotted owl, and Pacific salmon, marbled muralette, the whole old growth wars out west. So those folks developed silvicultural techniques to restore western old growth forests. Nobody tried it in the eastern U.S. But now, 20 years later, I can tell you that we know how to make this work. There has been a tremendous amount of research 
all over New England, upper Midwest, in many different places, trying out different techniques to restore old growth forests. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my study. It's this one, the Vermont Forest Ecosystem Management Demonstration Project. It's a mouthful, the FEMDEP, uh, up on the side of Mount Mansfield here, and then uh, also two other sites, the UVM Jericho Research Forest, and then we have some replicates of this, this experiment over near Paul Smith's College in the Adirondacks. So basically three sites, and at each of these, we've tried a variety of different silvicultural techniques. Let me explain how those work. So the way this study began is through the kinds of research that I was telling you about before, these studies of remaining old growth forests, like this diagram here. And from that kind of research, we learn about the structure of these forests, we learn about their internal processes, their dynamics. And then from that understanding, we develop silvicultural techniques, forestry practices that emulate some of those dynamics that help that forest change and develop over time. Things like low impact or small scale disturbances. And then we develop that system and, and then we try it. We, ex we experiment with it and then we see what happens. And we try to mimic or kind of recreate or accelerate the development of this old growth structure that we see in nature. So the system that I developed and that I've, I've been testing for 20 years now is called structural complexity enhancement. We're trying to take a younger, more simple forest and we're trying to accelerate the rate at which it develops the structural complexity that we find in these old forests. And I wasn't sure if there would be any foresters here today. Do we have any? Okay, so I'll just flash this up in case you're interested and then happy to tell you more about it later. But the way this system works, this is the structural complexity enhancement system, is that we have a whole variety of different structural objectives over here. These are the things that, we're not trying to create these overnight. We're trying to accelerate their development over time. And then we have a whole variety of different silvicultural techniques over here that are targeted at one or more of these characteristics. So sort of in a nutshell, that's the way this system works. There, there are many technical finer points that we could talk about. Don't have time for that today, but um, one of the things that we try to do with this approach is to emulate or approximate some of the natural disturbance dynamics that we see. So small gap forming events that release the crowns of some of the larger trees while also regenerating new trees. We try to mimic the ragged, irregular structure of, of an old growth forest and, and natural disturbances. Now, natural gaps don't look like little cookie cutter cuts the way we tend to do it. They're irregular. They have lots of trees inside them, dead and down. They're irregularly shaped. We try to emulate those dynamics to the extent that we can. Okay, so that's basically how the system I've been testing works. And now, well, 14, 15 years later, some of these stands are starting to look pretty good. They're really taking on these old growth characteristics. It's been incredibly gratifying for me to see this over time. Here's a mixed hemlock forest, uh, hemlock hardwood forest at the Jericho Research Forest that was treated this way 14 years ago. Here's a pure northern hardwood stand that was treated this way 14 years ago on the Mount Mansfield State Forest. So they really are starting to take on some of these old growth characteristics. And again, that's really exciting to see that we can accelerate these processes. 
there are lots of other things we've looked at too, like how the biodiversity has responded. We've looked at lots of different taxa. This is just one example. I had an undergraduate honor student a couple years ago look at mushrooms, the above ground sporocarps, or the above ground fruiting bodies of, of mushrooms. And he compared structural complexity enhancement, that's this, the old growth restoration technique, against the, the conventional approaches that we compared against, which I haven't mentioned yet, single tree selection and group selection. And we found this incredible increase in the richness of the fungal community where we did this old growth restoration technique. And that was true not just of the, of the mushrooms that you would expect, like the decomposers, that sort of thing, but also of the mycorrhizal species, the, one, the species that connect all the plants and trees below ground that, that have attracted so much interest recently with the, the secret life of trees in that book. So, uh, and also edible mushrooms as well showed a, a, and harvestable mushrooms showed a huge response. So if we do this, we can kind of manage uh, for mushrooms as well. I find that very exciting. Mushroom collectors, collectors should be um, glad to hear that. Okay, and then I will say a little bit about the carbon because this is really important. And over time, this study has kind of evolved actually from a study of old growth restoration to a study of carbon forestry. Because while all this was happening, the carbon markets were developing, the international voluntary carbon market, the California compliance market, and all of a sudden we have this financial incentive that these, these markets are providing to landowners to manage their forests for high carbon storage. And so landowners now want to know what kind of techniques will do that. And it just turns out that this old growth approach works really well for carbon. So this is kind of a complicated figure here, but here we have a, a line that re represents more or less kind of how much carbon the forest would have stored if we had not treated it at all, sort of a baseline. And then we have this line, which is the carbon storage that happens under more convention, conventional management. And then we have the carbon storage that we've achieved through structural complexity enhancement. And this was measured 10 years after we experimentally treated these forests. And the, the, the important point here is not that we can beat Mother Nature. It's really hard to beat Mother Nature at her own game. The unmanaged forest here actually stores the highest amount of carbon in my study. But we came within about 16% of what the unmanaged forest stored compared to about 45% for the more conventional treatments. Now, for those of you that are interested in this kind of thing, carbon markets and carbon financing for forest landowners, it's the difference between this approach here and this approach that the carbon markets call additionality. And that's actually what they pay you for. That's how you generate emissions offset credits. So um, that's very exciting for the carbon forestry side of this. Okay, um, I think the abstract that I submitted for this talk said I would say something about the economics. So in addition to carbon, we have looked at the timber and we put a lot of work into tracking the timber revenue from these different treatments. Um, and and uh, you know I can share those with you if you're interested. But basically the structural complexity enhancement approach did fairly well. It was moderate in terms of the revenue that it generated, and we're talking about just timber right now, in comparison to more conventional approaches. 
But you know, it's a lower impact approach, about 60% of the harvest volume in comparison to more traditional approaches. So, um, so it's not gonna maximize your revenue. But that was never the point all along, right? The whole old growth restoration idea was, this might be something that some landowners might be interested in doing in some places. Not everywhere, just as part of the overall mix. And what we can tell landowners now is kind of what combinations of things do you need for this approach to at a minimum break even and ideally generate a profit. So we know what those things are now. Okay, so from all this work, we can kind of collapse it down into this table and we can say, well, this kind of old growth silviculture or old growth restoration could work in a variety of different scenarios or contexts. We could think about using it purely for old growth forest restoration. Let's say you're the Nature Conservancy or you're Audubon or you're someone else where you're trying to manage a nature preserve for old growth. You could use it there. Or what if we're in places where we wanna do some very careful, light touch forestry along riparian areas to produce really high quality, exceptional stream systems. We could do it there. Or what if you're a more traditional timber management, maybe an industrial forest or, or a, a national forest or a state forest, and you have more of this timber emphasis, you could use it there as well. But in each case, the sort of the, the, the degree to which you're going to use this, the number of repeated entries over time that you might use might differ. And then associated with that would be the degree of this old growth structure that you might expect to develop over time. So that's the, the sort of simple explanation of this table, the, or even simpler is that we could use this in a variety of different ways in different places. Okay, so, um, so far we've talked about uh, kind of what old growth is, We've compared it a little bit against other systems globally. We've talked about some of the functions that old growth provide. And we've also, uh, hopefully I've convinced you that there's an opportunity to actually restore old growth or manage for it. Okay, the final bit of my talk, and just maybe the last five minutes here, um, is about the future. Because we have to acknowledge that things are changing and things are changing rapidly. And everything that we've just talked about could, could, be, could really change significantly into the future. With invasive pests and pathogens, for example, these could radically transform our late successional old growth systems. If you think about our major insect pests, emerald ash borer, beech bark disease, um, hemlock woolly adelgid, uh, Asian longhorn beetle, each of those preferentially attacks one of our most important late successional species. And it begs the question, what are we going to have left in the future? You know, so far the only old growth species that isn't threatened is yellow birch, but it's probably only a matter of time before it is as well. So things are going to change. The forests are going to look different in the future. Um, we need to acknowledge that. But at the same time, we have some evidence that older forests might actually be more resistant to some of these global change symptoms than younger forests. More resistant to climate, maybe more resistant to invasives, although that we don't know. And, and these are some headlines we, we grabbed um, last spring after we published a study that showed this. 
Uh, I thought it was funny that this was picked up by interesting engineering. Um, you know, not where I would have expected it, but that's, that was cool. Um, and, uh, you know, older forests resist climate change better. So we, we do have some real evidence that supports this now. This is not just a, a pipe dream. And it comes from this study that, again, was published last spring. And I, I thought I would attempt to explain this study today. Now, I will tell you that this is an incredibly complicated, complex study, and it's really difficult to explain. I don't think I have ever done that successfully. Uh, well, it was a paper that was published in Global Change Biology. Dominic Tom, my postdoc, was the leader. Um, I don't remember the exact title of the paper. I, I sense that you guys are gluttons for punishment, right? And you're, you're willing to hear this, yes? Okay, so we will make an attempt at it. All right, that's the spirit I like. Okay, so in this study, we used 18,500 permanent plots from across this northern tier of eastern North America, the northern forest in, in, from the upper Midwest through New England, and then also up into Quebec and Ontario. And if you think about it, this represents an ecotone between temperate forests down here and boreal forests up here, what ecologists call the hemiboreal zone. Of, of North America. And that actually gives you an opportunity to think about how things might change or move across this ecotone or transition zone with climate change. And that's an important element of the study. But in this study, using these plots, we wanted to know how the services that forests generate change with age. So carbon, biodiversity, water, services, how do those change in relation to age? And not just that, but how does the mix of services change? So, you know, as forests age, do they provide the same mix of services or a different mix of services? And in ecology or statistics, we call that covariation. So how does one thing change relative to another? That's covariation. Okay, so we took all these data, we put it into University of Vermont's supercomputing cluster. And it, it ran millions and millions of calculations. The supercomputer had to crunch these numbers for days to give us this output. And this is what we got. And this is the hard part to explain here. I'm just gonna walk you through it slowly. So let's start with this panel here. So let's think about carbon. So this is carbon storage and this is forest age. And these lines just represent different ways in which a forest is storing carbon, different places it's storing carbon, above ground, in the soil, trees, shrubs, that kind of thing, okay? So that's the carbon from those 18,500 plots. Um, this is growth, so tree growth rates, and very interestingly, showing this uptake in growth rates in very old trees, completely contrary to dogma and to what most people think. And we're not the only ones to show this. this is, there's new evidence coming out from around the world suggesting that sometimes big old trees are able to actually increase their growth rates a little bit. That's a whole nother story. Okay, so this is growth. This is biodiversity, so how species richness is changing in these forests a little bit. Over time, a bunch of different taxonomic group groups. So we've got carbon, we've got growth, we've got biodiversity. So think of those things as services, okay? 
Now we're going to take each of those and we're going to standardize the way we look at them. We're just going to kind of display them on a 0 to 100% efficiency scale, performance. So how do these services compare against each other in relation to forest age? Okay, that's what we have there. Okay, once we've got that, we can then say, okay, how do some of these services that we just model co-vary? So we're going to take this and now we're going to compare species richness to carbon, species richness to growth, growth to carbon, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to look at this co-variation that we talked about, the mix of services under the current climate. That's what that panel is right there, okay? The mix of services under the current climate. Then we did some really fancy modeling, introducing climate change scenarios, increasing the temperature, changing the precipitation regime. And the final panel, how does this mix of services, the co-variation between each of these things, how will this be different with climate change? That's what this panel is here. Okay, so I've walked you all the way through the logical sequence to the final panel. And the most important thing here is that the mix of services, their co-variation, changes the least in the oldest forests. The younger forests are the most susceptible to climate change in terms of how the mix of services and habitats they provide will change in the future. So it was like, aha, older forests are more resistant to climate change. The mix of services will change the least in those. So very complicated study, but that's what we showed. And um, it's really kind of moved the needle a little bit on, on this discussion. Okay, so clear explanation. Thank you. Oh, I hope that was understandable. I'm glad. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. So you know, great, great. Um, so that gets us to the the sort of the final point of the talk then, which is that there is hope for the future, and and I'm a believer that old growth forests will have a place on the landscape. There will be a role for them, and having them here as part of the mix, as part of our overall adaptation strategy will have benefits. It will help our landscape to remain resilient to global change. And so I guess just a couple of final thoughts from the book then, with this kind of care and attention that we've talked about, future generations may also have the experience of walking into an eastern old growth forest. And even though those forests may be different from the forests that we had in the past, Future generations might also have this opportunity to catch a glimpse, glimpse of something timeless, mysterious, and compelling. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. I'd be happy to take questions. Yeah. Yeah, so very compelling. Thank you. Um, as someone doing some, having a forest or doing some forest management on our land and doing catch cuts and things like that, what, like, Foresters aren't thinking this way yet, um, in my observation. So what would you suggest for a forest owner in terms of, uh, I don't know, like strategies or initiatives? <laughs> <laughs> so is all of like the strategies yeah. in there? Or like, are there other resources that 
could help us in working with traditional foresters, what would you recommend? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question and kind of where the rubber hits the road on all of this, right? We need everybody trained up so they know the, the techniques that are available. My sense actually is that um, things are changing and I'm seeing a lot of foresters you know, catch on to these ideas. I mean, our commissioner of public lands, Mike Snyder, is actually really supportive of this idea. And we even have a statewide program right now. Bob Zano, he's been in the news a little bit. Oh, oh, where are you from? Oh, Connecticut. Okay. Um, there's also work happening there as well. Um, Massachusetts to some degree, New Hampshire to some degree, not so much Maine. Um, uh, anyway, we have state level programs now promoting old growth. And so for Vermont, for example, has set a 10% target for late successional old growth that we would like to have. And we have some foresters that are actually learning the techniques. You do often see this driven though more by land trusts, Nature Conservancy, Audubon. If you think about Audubon's silviculture with birds in mind, a lot of those techniques actually lend themselves well also to old growth restoration. So the silviculture with birds in mind um, guide, which is available online, is actually a very good starting point for some of these ideas. Um, but you're asking me how how could other foresters get this training and what kinds of resources could they could they get? We have a couple of chapters on the silviculture in this book, so that might be one place to start. There's a U.S. Forest Service General Technical Report (GTR) that's also available for free online that has guidance on doing this sort of thing. But I actually think that's the next step that we need to take in this work, that we need to pr produce some, some better, simpler silvicultural guides that are just free and, and you know, readily available to everyone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so, first of all, I'm a student professor as well, so that's really cool that you were. Oh, great. Area, great. So. Excellent. Anyway, so, um, I was just wondering, because you had mentioned the differences in the carbon stores with the conventional way of managing old growth forests versus this like new age way. Yeah. Studies done on like the way that wildlife movement changes between the conventional way of managing versus this kind of new way of managing. Um, that you're aware of. So wildlife movement specifically, like dispersal. Yeah, moving into an area, just like in general, have there been any wildlife studies to see like mm -hmm. how these new would benefit the wildlife? I would say yes, for sure. I mean, we've we've done that with small mammals and birds a little bit, a little bit on. Uh, soil invertebrates, if you include those as wildlife, and we've shown a, a, a positive response uh, to this kind of silviculture. Um, there are other studies all over the country, actually, that have shown a fairly significant wildlife response, and it's to be expected, you know, if you create the habitat structures that they need. Oh, salamanders also, that was one of our, our papers. So, for example, by creating downwoody debris, we saw a huge population response in redback salamanders colonizing those logs and, and using them. For some things, though, like birds, it's tricky because, you know, birds usually have territory sizes and, you know, each nesting pair or something needs five acres usually or, or kind of at a minimum around here. And so to really see a population response for some wildlife taxa like that, you have to do this across a large enough area for it to really make a difference. And so to, to really gain what you're talking about, we need to start scaling some of this up, you know, and doing it across more significant areas. Yes? What is the role of commercial forestry and loggers in mm -hmm. promoting old growth 
Yeah. How would they respond to your presentation today? Right. If you had a mill owner, sure. what would he say? Great question. So they would be skeptical, and I've, I've faced a lot of skepticism over the years uh, around this issue. Um, but I will say that I feel like things are changing, that people are coming more receptive to these ideas now, particularly as we start talking about other things like carbon and flood resilience, these other really important issues. Um, and now, especially as we have an actual economic incentive to do some of those things, suddenly people are taking note. So on large commercial forests, industrial forests, you actually see a lot of these concepts being used they just won't call it old growth restoration. They might call it carbon forestry, like managing for high biomass, complex forests, something like that. So that's one thing. But then the other is that, you know, we don't always have to do this one way everywhere. It's not a one size fits all solution. You know, like, as I said before, we could think of this as pure restoration or there are bits and pieces of this you could think about including in a more intensively managed working forest. You know, like retain a few of the larger trees, leave a little more down woody debris, create irregular structures and complexity. Those are all things that work on commercial forests. So you can do, try different things in different places. Um, yeah? Is there a minimum age that you would start these sort of treatments? So I can't imagine Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So the technique that I showed you, structural complexity enhancement, is really just meant for a, a multi-aged forest or mature forest that's already kind of halfway through the, the development. I would never use that in a young, pole-sized, even-aged stand. You know, any silviculturalist will tell you that you need to start with a series of conversion cuts and usually start with some thinnings. But even there, uh, people are working on all kinds of innovative new approaches for younger stands. So an example would be variable density thinning instead of uniform density. Create more complexity, mess it up a little with variable density marking and cutting, or um, irregular shelterwood systems that leave some trees behind permanently and take a, a single-aged forest and transition it to a two-aged and then a three-aged forest over time. Mm -hmm. So the short answer is you have to find the right technique that matches your forest and the age and condition of that forest. Yeah. how there are benefits and drawbacks to um, increasing old growth, or you're, you were talking about how um, people want to increase new growth. Um, and I was curious if people are suggesting that we take, like cutting down old growth to promote more new growth. I mean, it just seems like mm -hmm. in New England, there's so much new growth, the forests here are so persistent. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about right. that kind of Okay, uh, great question. So I would say abroad, uh, old growth is, is highly threatened. So I presented some of the European work, and over there it's still highly threatened and is being actively cut down in a lot of those countries. So that's why there's this urgent need to map what's left and protect it. Here, I don't think that's happening very much. You know, we have so little left, and, and when we do have old growth, people usually recognize that it's important. The, I, I would hope. The, the patch cutting to create early successional habitats, patch cuts are like small clear cuts. Um, 
those are not really happening in old forests. They're happening in your typical sort of young to middle-aged secondary forests like we have everywhere. Um, and, and that's fine. The, but there is a question of how much of that do we want to do versus allowing some portion of the landscape to continue to develop into that old growth condition. And there's a tension between those two, two things, actually. Um, that gets pretty complicated. You have to understand how when you start patch cutting and we start working across the landscape progressively that way, you start shifting the landscape back into a younger, more simple condition. And that compounds over time. It's a little bit complicated to explain, but um, suffice it to say, there is a little bit of a trade-off there. So we need to think about how to do both of these things very carefully. Yeah. Uh, do you see the state of Vermont actually using these techniques on their Um Not exactly, but not, they wouldn't call it this. <laughs> but they, they, they are using the concepts, the idea of, well, woody debris enhancement, or large tree retention, or maybe snag creation through girdling. Certainly the expanding gap approach that you might have heard of, gaps that expand over time with permanent retention of legacy trees or leaf trees, all those techniques are being used. Those are all kind of subcomponents of what we talked about today. So I would argue that we've seen these concepts picked up by other people and used in different ways. They're just called different things. So I think yes. Okay, great. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thanks again. Thanks for coming.